episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash fool and entering promo code FOOL. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. He's the personal finance... Well, not the. He's a personal finance expert here no, at I Motley think the, Fool. The, the personal finance expert. At the Motley Fool. At Hi. Motley Fool. How are Hi. you, bro? Just fine. How are you, Allison? Good. I'm good, because I didn't have to carry a lot of water for this episode. You did, so... Let's just get into it. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Today, we're going to look at the greatest investors of all time, the Geoots, if you will. Actually, let's not, because that sounds more like a Pokemon than an honor. Uh, we'll also answer your question about whether to cash out a pension. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. It's time for Answers Answers. And today's question comes from Ken. Ken writes, my former employer still has a pension plan when I worked for them, and apparently I am eligible. Recently, they offered me a lump sum payout, and I'm wondering which is better. One wait and get the monthly checks after I retire, or two, take the lump sum, roll it over into my IRA, and let it grow under my watchful eye. Given the math of compounding and the numbers they provided for the payouts, option two seems to be a winner, but what do you think? Well, hello, Ken, and that's an interesting question. So Many people have these defined benefit pensions, and at some point in their lives or their careers, they can choose to either leave the money in the pension or take it as a lump sum. So the first thing to do would be to look at the safety of your pension. And every pension plan has an annual report. You want to know that it is mostly or fully funded. If it is a pension plan that is underfunded, that might be a reason to move the money to an IRA to get it while you still can. The other thing to consider is you might like that idea of what comes with the pension, which is a check in the mail every month for the rest of your life, but you might be able to get a better deal from an insurance company through an annuity. So you could take the money out, but then just buy your annuity. You get the same benefit. It might be a higher benefit, or at least it might be with a highly rated insurer so you feel more secure about the income. Or you can do what you're doing, which is, or you, it sounds to me like you would like to do, and that is move the money to the IRA and manage it yourself. And I think that is a perfectly fine alternative, especially if you are a good investor, you have a demonstrated record of managing your money well. I did read several years ago of a study that compared the um, returns of people who moved the money from their pension to the accounts, and it found that actually people weren't managing the money so well and that they were spending it too quickly. So you have to have a little bit of self-awareness about whether that really is the best option for you. But if you've demonstrated that you are a good money manager, then taking the money and managing yourself is a good idea. All right, so there you go, Ken. Take a good, hard look at your track record and figure out if you really are up to the task. We think you probably maybe are. I have faith in him. Yeah, there you go. Go for it. A big thanks to Casper for sponsoring this week's episode. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing the savings directly to the consumer. That's you! But this ain't no discount mattress. They are engineered to meet the Goldilocks standard of just right. So it's not too hard or too soft. Better yet, you get free shipping and painless returns within the first 100 days. You can save an additional $50 towards a mattress by going to casper.com fool and entering the promo code 
fool. Terms and conditions apply. I actually talked to one of our listeners, Byron. He uh, went for it and he bought a mattress for his mom and he said she loves it and he's thinking about getting one for himself. Well, that's good to hear. And it is good to hear. Yeah. I, I feel good when our sponsors um, treat our listeners well. So I have yet to hear that they've treated them poorly. <laughs> but if they do, they're going to have me that's to deal right. with. That's right. Some harsh words. all know the meaning of the acronym GOAT, thanks to our Battle of the Generations a few episodes, we can use it all the time. And in particular, when we're talking about the greatest of all time in investing. So Bro is going to introduce us to five famous investors and share some of the uh, smarter things that they've said and even some peculiar habits. Yes. So when we decided to do this, it actually turned out to be quite a challenge to boil it down to the greatest investors of all time. Oh, and um, I should say this is part one. This is part one. Because Citizens on Patrol. <laughs> partially because I could not narrow it down to a smaller list. Um, for some of these investors, they have public res- records, but some don't because they managed hedge funds and those don't always disclose the returns. Sometimes these investors start investing way back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and the records aren't available. So it was a little difficult to narrow it down to the greatest investors, but the five we have today are definitely investors. Anyone who wants to learn to be a better investor should get to know. And I'm going to start with number, number one. one, John Bogle. Jack, Jack to friends. Jack to friends. And that might sound a little odd, right? Because you might think a great investor is someone who beats the market, whereas Jack Bogle is often telling people to try to match the market by doing an index fund. The founder but of Vanguard. The founder of Vanguard. The, um, off the creator of index funds. Exactly. Um, and. It did, they were not available until Vanguard came out with it. So, in other words, the, we all, the research back then was clear that it was difficult to beat the market. But you didn't have an option to match it until the index fund came out. But that was only really just one innovation. The other innovation was that when Jack Bogle founded Vanguard in 1975, he created the first and really only mutual mutual fund company. The company is owned by the funds, which are owned by the shareholders. So basically, when you invest in a Vanguard fund, you own part of the company. Why does that matter? Because the company doesn't have a profit motive. It operates at cost. And it's key to why Vanguard could keep its costs so low. When the index fund came out, the bank that was helping launch it was hoping to raise $150 million. Only got about $11 million. And wow. Bogle was urged to close it. In fact, it was labeled Bogle's Folly. But he's kind of a stubborn guy, so he persevered, and now it is the biggest mutual fund in the world. Wow. So then, does he not? Did he not get like super wealthy, rich? He didn't. No, Vanguard? because he, there wasn't there wasn't any stock to own, so it wasn't a situation where you know if you um, start a company like like Bill Gates, for example, Microsoft. One of the reasons he's so wealthy is because he owns Microsoft. So, Microsoft stock. Now, John Bogle is doing fine. In an interview I read in 2012, <laughs> <I'm> sure, <yeah. laughs> he estimated his net worth in the low eight figures. So that means what? Like 20 million, 30 million, something like that. A lot of money. He's doing fine, but nothing compared to like the Jamie Diamonds of the world or any of these other sort of titans of Wall Street. Yeah, you'd think if you're, the company you founded is the largest money manager in the world that you would be. Right. Bajillion, bajillion. Right. Many of the other investors that we will discuss today and in the next installment are billionaires. Jack Bogle's not a billionaire. Just a humble millionaire. Just a, trying a deck to help millionaire. the world out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what would you say is one of Jack Bogle's 
better, smart things that he's said. What's a good Jack Bogle quote? Well, I think the one that encapsulates his whole philosophy is, don't look for the needle in the haystack, buy the haystack. In other words, just buy the whole market. And history has shown that if you do that, you will outperform the vast majority of mutual fund managers as well as individual investors. Vanguard now has more than 200 funds and ETFs, and it's not just the Vanguard 500. You can have a small cap index fund. I actually asked Morningstar to provide me with the top performing 25 funds over the last 20 years that have had the same manager. And Vanguard's small cap index fund is right there at the top, among the top five. So there are other options at Vanguard that also provide outstanding returns. All right, any fun facts about Jack we should know? The dude is just hilariously frugal. Like when he came to speak at the Motley Fool back in 2008, 2009, he had this shirt on and he was complaining that his wife made him buy it because the other shirt he had was looking a little ratty. Um, and in a 2012 interview with Reuters, um, Chris Taylor, the interviewer, asked him, Do you have any extravagances? in your life, and this is what he said. He said, every winter, my wife and I take a week off and we go to a resort in Florida. But I really can't stand spending money on myself. I don't like, to go into, I don't like going into stores. I don't like the whole process of buying things. So here's a guy who is, at the time, 83 years old, still working, mm-hmm. and his big extravagance is that he takes a week off with his wife and goes a to Florida. whole week. No. This is pretty funny. All right, let's move on to the next investor. And this is someone I've never heard of, but then again, it's me, so I don't know if that says much. It but says more it, about me. No, probably. it's not, because I bet most people will not have heard of this person. That's okay. because most people cannot invest in his hedge fund. And this person is Jim Simons. Um, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's had as much academic and investing success as this guy. So, in 1958, he goes to MIT, gets his mathematics degree, gets a PhD from Berkeley. He taught at MIT, at Harvard, at Stony Brook. And he made significant contributions to math. I'm sure we all are familiar with the Chern-Simmons form. It's Simon's my, form. my favorite form. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, top, top three. Top three. In 1976, he was awarded the Oswald Veblen Prize by the American Mathematical Society, which is sort of like, in the world of geometry, that's getting like the best director at the Academy Awards. It's like the huge best award you can get in geometric circles. I <laughs> get that? That's what I said, yeah. He actually doesn't do that many interviews. He likes to stay very private, but in a 2015 TED interview, he said, basically, by his late 30s, he was bored with math. He thought he'd start investing. And so he started a hedge fund in 1982, a company called Renaissance Technologies. And basically, he was using computer-enabled statistical analysis to look for patterns in prices, make predictions about investments, and invest accordingly. And so, that made it really one of the first what we now call quant funds, basically funds that invest just on quantitative analysis. And it worked. According to Bloomberg, from 1994 to mid-2014, the main fund returned annualized 71.8% a year before fees. The fees? Yeah. Ridiculous. Okay, so the average mutual fund charges about one, one and a half percent. Average average hedge fund does something called two and twenty, two percent a year plus twenty percent of profits. At one point, the, <laughs> Jim Simon's fund charged the highest fees of any hedge fund, five percent a year, and forty four percent of the profits. Wow! And people still were clamoring to get in. Um, so when you add his success to those high fees, um, his net worth is probably well over fifteen billion at this point. Um, and it's interesting because. We at The Motley Fool definitely are proponents of buy and hold investing, business-focused investing. 
he's doing what would now be called high-frequency trading, um, and it worked for him. And so there are lots of ways to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that most people don't make money this way. Well, most people didn't win the Zamboni Award from the <laughs> Mathematical Association. <laughs> right. From he's a bright boy, and he's yeah. managed to get other bright folks to come along and work for him. Yeah. All right. Any yeah. wise words from Jim's Jim Jim? Jim can, I call him, can I call him Jim? You call him Jim. Okay. You call him Jim. Why not? Um, yes. Yeah, so he said he once said, "I wasn't the fastest guy in the world. I wouldn't have done well in an Olympiad or at a math contest, but I like to ponder." Pondering things, just sort of thinking about it and thinking about it, turns out to be a pretty good approach. Um, and he has a lot in common with a, a few of the other folks that we will highlight in that he is definitely a contrarian. He acts in a way that is different than everyone else who's most of the people on Wall Street, and that's been a big secret of his success. Right, any quirky, quirky things we want to know about him? Uh, well, during the 1960s, he was a code breaker for the NSA. Uh, until he was fired, partially because he uh, wrote a letter to an editor to a newspaper, I think, a newspaper magazine, basically speaking out, speaking out against the Vietnam War. And in honor of his contributions to mathematics as well as his philanthropy, the International Astronomical Union named an asteroid after him. Aww. Isn't that nice? <laughs> That's so sweet. All right, let's move on to our next investor. And this is also someone I've never heard of. Well, then you need to listen to more of Tom Gardner's speeches. Tom Gardner being the co-founder of The Motley Fool, because this number three on our greatest investor of all time is Shelby Davis. And Tom mentions him every once in a while in speeches. Rick, have you ever heard of Shelby Davis? We get a nod from Rick. Yes. Yes. And he is famous because he turned $50,000 of his wife's money into $900 million over 47 years. So that's a compounded rate of return of more than 23% a year. Um, he started off in life not necessarily being interested in investing more in politics. Um, he got an undergraduate degree in Russian history from Princeton in 1930. He got a PhD in political science from the University of Geneva in 1934. He worked on Thomas Dewey's presidential campaigns in 40 and 44. Thomas Dewey being the governor of New York. Since he didn't win the presidency, um, he hired uh, Shelby Davis to be his insurance commissioner for the state of New York from 44 to 47. And that's important because. Once Shelby Davis started his own investment firm in 47, he basically focused on insurance stocks. And it did very, very well for him. He focused particularly on low PE stocks, price to earnings ratio, so low value stocks, but also ones that had depressed earnings so that he would get what he would call his Davis double play. So that when the company turned its earnings around, it would get a little boost in the stock price. But then people would see that it's a cheap stock that's now gaining earnings rush into the stock, drive up its valuation. So it had two forces going to work for him there. Um, he was a big believer in diversification, depending on which source you consult. When he died in 94, he either owned between 500 stocks and over 1,000 stocks, Whoa. partially because he just never sold. Hmm. He bought and held on for the long term. And it's turned out to be a family business. Shelby's son, also named Shelby, founded the Davis Advisors Mutual Funds in 1969. They currently manage more than $2 billion with the help of the original Shelby's grandsons, Chris and Andrew, who manage some of those funds. Um, and you can learn about the whole family as well as some pretty fascinating history of Wall Street in a book by John Rothschild called The Davis Dynasty. And what, what is some smart words from Shelby that we should all take with us? Probably the most famous one is, bear markets make people a lot of money, they just know it, don't know it at the time. <laughs> I like um, that. Yes. Another quote, we'll get into the interesting facts here. So, at one point, one of his grandsons asked 
Shelby for a dollar to buy a hot dog? This was his response. Do you realize if you invest that dollar wisely, it will double every five years? By the time you reach my age in 50 years, your dollar will be worth $1,024. Are you so hungry that you need to eat a $1,000 hot dog? (laughs) (laughs) Which brings us to the fun fact in that he also was a very frugal like person. Yeah. Yes. So he was no not he didn't like to write things down because that wasted paper. If he had to, he would use old envelopes or scraps of paper. He kept old shoes going with tape and wow. glue. His kids kept begging him for a pool, even though at that point they were millionaires, and he said, I'm only gonna do it if you actually dig the pool. Um, and there was a uh, he actually created trust funds for his kids. But they grew more than he expected, so he didn't think they should get them. Oh, wow. So when his daughter turned 22, he tried to make her give her $3.8 million trust fund to Princeton, his alma mater. Ugh. She didn't like that idea. No. So it became sort of front page news in the New York tabloids for years. At some point, he, he said something along the lines of, you don't need a trust fund, you need a good spanking. <gasps> These guys may be great investors, but they're maybe not people I want to like get a beer with. <laughs> I don't know about Shelby Davis. Um, if you're very conservative, you probably would, because he was a big backer of the Heritage Fund from the early days. Um, and John Bogle, frankly, is one of my all-time heroes, so I would love to sit down and talk to him. He's a very educated guy. I mean, the, the, whole, the name Vanguard comes from history. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details, but he's just a very well-educated guy. Yeah. No, I, I would get a beer with, with Jack. Jack, just so you know, I would get a beer with you. Uh, you would buy the beer. I would, I would have to buy the beer, but I'm okay with that. Um, I just don't know about I just don't know about Shelby. Don't know about that guy. All right, let's move on to the fourth investor that we're going to talk about today, and this is a name I do know, but I don't know why. <laughs> that name is John Templeton. So he was born in 1912 in a small town in Tennessee, relatively poor. He did manage to get to Yale, graduated toward the top of his class, and then went to Oxford to get a master's in law uh, as a Rhodes Scholar. So a bright guy. Yeah. Um, These are all bright guys. Yes, yeah, very bright guys. Um, what's interesting is he co-founded an investment firm in 1937, and America still was in the throes, really, at least the aftershocks of the Great Depression. So anyone starting a firm, an investment firm in the 30s, to me, it's a pretty gutsy call. Um, and then in 1939, he did this thing where he basically bought every stock on the New York and American stock exchanges that were trading for a, less than a dollar. So he ends up with 104 stocks. 37 of which are already in bankruptcy, sells four years later, quadrupled his money. In an interview in 2004, he's now passed away uh, with smart money. They asked what, what made him do that. And he said, well, Hitler was going into Poland, and I knew that during times of war, things become scarce. When things become scarce, prices go up. So that's why I did it. And that hints to why John Templeton is really famous, and that is being really one of the first global investors. The first, he said, when he was growing up in Tennessee, nobody owned shares of anything. Then he went to Yale and he saw plenty of people own shares, but they were all shares of US companies. And he couldn't get anyone to, to explain to him how could he get shares in other companies. So that's when he saw that as an opportunity. Um, his, temple, his, his mainstay flagship fund, he founded in 1954, still around, still managed by other people. He's not managing, it's harder when to manage when you're dead. When you're dead, yeah. He's good, but not that good. Not that good. Um, but it was one of the first, it's really the first truly global fund. It started buying Japanese stocks in the 60s, which no one was doing, which paid off huge because in the 80s in particular, Japan was the place to be. Um, and according to 
a fellow by the name of Frederick Van Haverbeek, who wrote a very interesting book about who were the greatest investors. He found that over Templeton's career, he outperformed the S&P 500 by approximately 3% a year. So, if you compound that over the almost 40 years he was an investor, that's a huge thing. All right. So, do you have any notable quotables from John Templeton? Yeah. He was also known as being a contrarian. And the quote I would give you is, if you want to have a better performance than the crowd, you must do things differently from the crowd, which leads us into one of the fun facts. And that is, he renounced his U.S. citizenship. Hmm. And, and moved, lived most of his life in the Bahamas. He renounced the citizenship because he didn't want to pay so much in taxes. He wanted to be in the Bahamas because he said that you have to be far away from Wall Street if you want to act different from Wall Street. He had dual Bahamian and British citizenship. He actually was a great philanthropist. He gave away probably about a billion dollars to various causes, and because of that, he was knighted by Queen oh. Elizabeth. So he's actually Sir John Templeton, born in Tennessee lived mostly in the Bahamas. Kind of an interesting guy. Yeah, no kidding. All right, and let's go, let's move on to the fifth and final great GOAT investor that we're going to talk about today. And that is? The one that everyone expects. Everyone wants, yeah. Everyone knows. And that, of course, is Warren Buffett. Mr. Warren Buffet. That's true. Yes. And so, of course, you always have to do the obligatory how much money you'd have if you had invested in, in, in Berkshire Hathaway from the beginning. And that is? So, from 1964 to 2015, Berkshire Hathaway returned 20.8% compared to 9.7% for the S&P 500. So, $1,000 invested in the S&P 500, today you'd have $112,000. Not bad. Not bad. In Berkshire, $15.3 million. Oh, that's a lot better. That's a lot better. Um, the interesting thing about Warren Buffett is he really was an entrepreneur and investor from a very early age. So. Um, he told someone very like by the time he was when he was like around thirteen, he said, "If I'm not a millionaire by the time I'm thirty, I'm going to jump off the tallest building <laughs> in Omaha, which is where he grew up." Yeah. Uh, one lesser known thing about him is that people know that he's a big supporter of Democratic causes. His father was actually a Republican Congressperson oh. who hated FDR and the New Deal, um, but when he was in office, Warren Buffett grew up and lived in Washington D.C became a newspaper delivery boy for the Washington Post, which he, as an adult, later invested in. And this is back in the 40s, mind you. As a kid, he made more than $5,000 delivering newspapers. Wow! And by the time he was a teenager, 14 years old, he invested $1,200 of his savings in 40 acres of farmland. So, from a very young age, this guy was looking for ways to make money. He and a friend would buy used pinball machines, install them in barber shops and share the profits with people. So, he was just kind of wired for this type of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's extremely quotable. So, did you were you able to narrow it down to just one? You know, it's it's not the most exciting one, but it's it's the one that frankly encapsulates what he mostly believes in, and that is <laughs> good find it. Is it the tree one? <laughs> no. Is it the I don't know. I feel like I could go. It is. Shares are not mere pieces of paper, they represent part ownership of a business. So, when contemplating an investment, think like a prospective owner. Um, and I, of course, should I add another one that is, if when making a stock investment, you're not considering holding it for at least 10 years, don't waste more than 10 minutes considering it. And that's been the secret of Buffett's success, as well as the success of people like Shelby Davis. They found good companies at reasonable prices, not necessarily super cheap prices, reasonable prices, but they were willing to hold on for decades. 
And he's also an extremely quirky guy. Were you able to narrow it down to one fun fact? Um, this is actually not... He is a very quirky guy and with a very interesting biography. But I think the fun fact about him is that many people don't know that he's a big proponent of index funds. In fact, he thinks most people should be invested in index funds. We had mentioned in a previous episode that that, that was his advice for LeBron James. When LeBron James asked him for investment advice. And in his will, he stipulates that some of his heir, of his estate will be invested in index funds. So he recognizes, even though he's had this great success, that it's actually very difficult to beat the market. All right, so that is our first five of our two-part series on the goat goats of investing. So we'll be back next week with five more fascinating investors that you can learn from. The postcards keep coming in, and I have one I have to share. Please do. So bear with me here. All right, so this is one that came from Randy in Tulsa, and I realize talking about a postcard does not make for great radio, but I will describe it to you. The postcard is probably about 50 years old, and it's a postcard of the Cook's Court Motel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, At the time, getting a room at the hotel was $2.50 a night. (laughs) And so, uh, Randy writes, My parents bought the land this motel has been on and built a collision repair center, and we opened for business 40 years ago tomorrow. I was 16, now at 56. I'm good with math. The help I've received from Foolish Advice has me comfortable that I'll be ready to retire at 65. Thanks for your services in podcasts, Fool On. How cool is that? That is very cool. Isn't that awesome? Uh, We also want to thank Kathy in Virginia, who sent a postcard from her alma mater, Kansas State. We've got John from Mass, who visited St. Louis, and Mazar, who sent probably the biggest postcard so far. And of course, it's from Texas. So, <laughs> And as far as the postcard that has traveled the farthest distance, I'm sorry, Berlin, you've been beaten by Afghanistan. That's right. Alan, he has uh, sent us a postcard all the way from Afghanistan. Unfortunately, though, uh, he says, sorry, Afghanistan is not a tourist trap yet. No postcard vendors. Can you believe it? Damn rocket attacks. So he instead sent us a card from Chewy's, which is his favorite restaurant, and he picked up a postcard while he was at the Dulles airport. And so he says, "Keep the good times coming." Um, he addressed the postcard, "Dearest Allison and that other guy." <laughs> uh, it's the Allison Southwick show, apparently. Alan, thank you for listening, and most of all, stay safe out there in Afghanistan. Um, sending lots of foolish love your way. Fingers crossed we can still get a postcard from the Olympics. Again, our address is 2000 Duke Street, 4th floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Um, Thanks, you guys. These really warm our heart. Uh, Thanks. Warms our heart? We share the same heart. (laughs) Don't I I get the heart tonight? It warms our plural hearts, not our collective heart. All right. Of course, we also take questions in addition to postcards because we're called Motley Fool Answers. You can email us at answers at fool.com or you can leave a voicemail at 866 Mrs. Fool. <laughs> Just cracks me up. Oh, okay. All right. Um, that's going to do it for today. The show is edited go- goadingly by Rick Engdahl. I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. Just go with it. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.